morning. Sorry about that. All right. All right. Welcome, everyone. As Graham mentioned, my name is Cameron. <laughs> Can you, uh, would you please join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege it is uh, that you've invited us into your presence through worship, Lord, and that you've given us your word uh, through which you communicate your will to us. So right now, as we examine that word, we ask that our eyes would be open to behold wondrous things from that word and that our lives would be transformed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this week I'm starting a a series on looking at a biblical uh, view or biblical perspective of what it means to be the church. And it's based on 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 9. um, uh, It says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Before I get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about what what I mean by uh, uh, the series and kind of introduce it a little bit. Um, there's really a lot of, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've noticed. <laughs> you know, there's 250 different churches in Kalamazoo County. Did you know that? <clears throat> 250. <laughs> it's interesting that there's about 250,000 people in our market. If you take our county... If you include the market area, our county is about 230,000. And I've always wondered uh, or kind of thought, wow, in the ideal circumstance, every church would be about 1,000 people. Wouldn't that be interesting? There's just just the right number of churches. Every church could be a a vibrant living church and have enough people, and not that it have to be that big to to be effective, but uh, there's plenty of people to go around. And um, there's lots of different competing views of what the church should look like and how it should function and what the priorities... I think I'm going to switch mics. Sorry about that. A lot of different competing um, views about what the church should look like. And, and really, all of, the, all of the views, I believe, this is where I'm coming from, is that I think all of the views have elements of truth in them. And so if someone comes up and kind of starts criticizing a particular form of church, as long as it's not her, you know, heresy, as long as it's not a cult, if it's a genuine church, they're just doing it a different way, I'm not real tolerant of criticism. Of, of the church, because I see in all the different forms of church value. And there's different expressions that I, I can walk away from a church that's completely radically different than our church, say, uh, and still get something from it. I enjoy, actually, those experiences, even though I may not be called to, to pastor a church that may look like uh, another church. So, so there, <clears throat> there's many different views, and really all of the views, or many of the views, are, are right in that they have good elements in them. But also many of the views, or the ways churches operate, um, are excessive, some are limiting, and some are just plain wacky. Everybody say wacky. Yeah. <laughs> How many have been in a wacky church? How many are sitting in one right now? <laughs> All right. It, it has been said about us people. <laughs> That's okay. I've kind of embraced it. 
All right, my goal in this series is to share some things that I see in Scripture that teach us what we should look like, and hopefully to inspire us to aspire to these uh, these ideals. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And there's an overarching <clears throat> principle here that we have to embrace in that when I talk about the church, I'm talking about principles that applies to us as a group as well as or equally uh, they apply to us as individuals. All right, Because we are the body of Christ and members individually. That's what that Scripture is talking about. We are the church as a group, and we are the church individually. <clears throat> and then in the <clears throat> other direction, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, this also applies not only as a local congregation, but some of these principles, or all of the principles, apply to the church universal. And so when you look at the church in the bigger context, like the church in America or the church worldwide, and that is the, uh, the, the all believers uh, throughout the world, uh, regardless of what denomination or country or language they speak, they're all the church. And so it applies, the principles apply from the individual all the way up to this huge body of believers of which there are approximately 2 billion confessing Christians on the planet today. Uh, pretty cool, huh? Two billion? That's good. All right, so I hope to identify how these uh, ideas apply to us individually. I'm going to focus on, in the next couple, of weeks, next couple of weeks, how they apply to us as individuals and how they apply to us as a, a local church uh, and how they apply to us as individuals within the local church. So those are the two uh, kind of things that we want to uh, look at. And the idea is that each of us have strengths and weaknesses, right? And when we come together as a local congregation, those strengths and weaknesses, they kind of fit together in a way that they compensate. So your strengths may compensate for my weaknesses and vice versa. And that happens to all of us. And so this is why it's so important to be part of a local congregation because there's no one individual that's got it all together and can be kind of like an independent church of one. <laughs> all right? We need one another because we, uh, uh, our strengths and our weaknesses work together so that the whole is built up. In fact, uh, there just happens to be a scripture about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. It says that, uh, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, uh, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what Paul is talking about there in, the, in Ephesians is that, you know, when we all come together and we work together, uh, then growth is the result. We edify one another in love. And that's the purpose. That's what church is all about. Well, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3.9, God, uh, being God's fellow workers, being God's field and God's building. We're going to, going to work through it backward. We're going to start this morning and look at what it means to be God's building. And then next week, we're going to look at what it means to be God's garden, okay, or God's farm. And then, uh, actually, uh, we're going to skip a week because we have a guest minister coming in. <clears throat> 
In the final week, we're uh, actually we're going to take two work weeks and look at what it means to be uh, fellow uh, workers or co-laborers with Christ. And so, uh, before we get into this verse, I want to talk a little bit about the context, and this is really pertinent for today, um, and the 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 community and the society that we're living in right now. I want to talk a little bit about what it. Uh, the city of Corinth looked like because Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. Okay? <clears throat> and the purpose of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians particularly is to correct some errors uh, in how they were functioning as a church. And so this gives us tremendous insight into how to operate a church because Paul is actually writing to a church saying, you know, this is what you have going on that's good, and this is where you need to get a little better at it. All right? And, uh, and so it can answer a lot of questions. In fact, uh, we know uh, from historical studies that the document is actually a response Paul is writing uh, to questions that the Corinthians had written to him, asking him uh, some questions. And one of the things you need to know to understand is that Corinth is a city in Greece that was known for being very carnal. Okay, I guess that the, the American equivalent may be Las Vegas, right? <clears throat> you know, Sin City. Uh, it, it, but really, like, exponentially worse. Sin City would be quite pristine uh, compared to Corinth. Um, and uh, it was, let me just read a quote from um, a resource I came across in my glasses. All right, this is from William Barclay's uh, commentary. Uh, the, the city had a reputation for uh, commercial prosperity, but she, the city, was also a byword for evil living. The very uh, word Corinthian, or to live like a Corinthian, had become part of the Greek language and meant to live with a drunken and immoral debauchery. 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 Um, a Greek writer tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown up upon a stage in a Greek play, he was shown as being drunk. <laughs> All right? The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery. And there was one source of evil in the city which was known all over the civilized world. Above the isthmus towered the hill of Acropolis, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. To that temple there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. Are the children already out of here? Excuse me. Are the children out of the room? If they're not, plug their ears. Oh, okay. <laughs> to the temple there were attached, not literally, um, 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. And in the evening they descended from the Acropolis and plied their trade upon the streets of Corinth until it became a Greek proverb, it is not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. <laughs> In addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far more uh, recondite vices, which can come in, the, come in with the traders and the sailors from the ends of the earth, until Corinth became not only a synonym for wealth and luxury, drunkenness and debauchery, but also for filth. 
Okay, so it was a city, it was a large city, and it was known for just being nasty. Um, in addition, Paul comments on uh, the culture later in the book. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, or the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Almost sounds like the headlines from uh, the newscast, doesn't it? Right? Extortioners. Barney Madoff, you know, drunkards, revilers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous. And then he goes on in verse 11 says, And such were some, were some of you. So in other words, writing to the church saying, You were these kind of people. The entire list. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so it really cracks me up. It doesn't crack me up. It actually makes me angry. When, well, it does both. And it's just like I'm dumbfounded. When people, um, when people that are um, uh, speaking against uh, conservative uh, Christian views on such things like homosexuality and uh, uh, other immoral uh, lifestyles. And you notice that's just one of a list that includes things like extortionists and drunkards and revilers, okay, and people who are covetous. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and, and people say, well, the Bible was written in a time when, when we di they didn't realize that some people were born that way and, or such and such, or it wasn't accepted in society. And, and, and when they say that, they are revealing that they are historically ignorant to the nth degree, okay? Because in Corinth and in all of Greek society, homosexuality was not only accepted and openly practiced, it was just a normal part of society. In addition to that, and above and beyond that, in many Greek cities, Corinth especially, it was considered a form of worship. All right? People, when, when you use the term worship, they would think of going to the temple and having sex with either a male or a woman uh, prostitute and paying money as an act of glorifying their god, Aphrodite. All right? Are you hearing me? Like it was just a common... No one would even think twice. If you're a Corinthian or if you're a Greek, you wouldn't think twice that it was an okay practice. It was completely accepted. And the Bible was written in that context. And here we are in American culture coming up against um, the beginnings of acceptance of, of that lifestyle and other lifestyles, whether it be drunkenness or whatever. And people don't understand that God has addressed this issue. 
And in fact, God's answer to a culture that was filled with debauchery and filth and uh, unhealthy and destructive lifestyle patterns, you know what His answer was? His answer was the church. Okay, People in the midst of a culture that's broken and fallen down, living in a way that offers an alternative. And it was through that, through little, small, one by one, individuals and, and small groups and little churches, meeting in houses and later growing and larger and becoming greater and greater influence of people living the lifestyle of God eventually changed the whole culture of that of the world. Are you hearing me? Alright? God's answer, God's response to the culture that was described is people living as the church. And I believe if that was true... Wow, that's really weird. If that was true then, it's true now. Are you hearing me? Okay? How are we going to respond to the influences in our culture that say, hey, it's okay to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. All right? Uh, it's okay to consume uh, whatever you want for whatever reasons you want. You know, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, what you do is your own problem. How do you, how do you, how do you come against that influence? You be the church. All right? God's, instrument in the world that provides a, 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 an alternate uh, lifestyle that people who were part of that. So maybe someone who uh, has lived as a practicing homosexual or an adulterer or a drunkard or an extortionist. You know, can come in and find freedom and say, wow, life is better like this. Amen? And find community and find a, re, uh, a group of people. That's, um, that's, that's God's vision for the church. All right? Uh, let's see. Let's go on. Ba, 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 ba. And so it's, it's about a group of individuals being God's co-laborers, being God's garden being God's building. So what does it mean to be God's building? And just for your uh, information, in um, uh, that verse, 1 Corinthians 3.9, um, it's kind of wordy, but in the Greek, it's really, really brief. It's basically God's co-laborers, God's garden, God's building, you are. If you just took... Uh, he's like, it's like punctuated statements. God's co-laborers, God's garden, God's building you are. You know, that's what it's all about. Without a lot of explanation put in, I think Paul was trying to drive home this point that this is our identity. This is who we are. And this is why we should live in the particular way uh, we are called to live. So what does it mean to be God's building? Let me read uh, verse 9 through 17. It says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Amen. <laughs> if anyone's work which he has he or she has built on it endures, he or she will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Okay, so we're going we're gonna, to um, zero in or zoom into several phrases within that passage that I just read. And if you have your Bibles, you can unline those uh, words if you'd like. In, in uh, <clears throat> verse 9 it says that, um, uh, verse 10 it says, according to the grace which was given to me. How did Paul build the church or lay the foundation? He did it according to the grace. In fact, everything Paul did, he did according to grace. In fact, everything God does, he does according to to grace. What does it mean to be according to grace? In alignment with. Okay? Everything that was done was done according to grace. Everybody say grace. You know what grace means? What's grace mean? Favor. Alright. What's that? Unmerited favor. What's that mean? <clears throat> you don't earn it. So does that mean you deserved it? No, you don't deserve it. It's a gift. That's why we're giving away a gift every Sunday. Because the Gospel's all about grace. And so the church is built based on or according to grace. Everything in it must line up with grace. Next phrase is, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Oh, well... Kind of interesting. <clears throat> it's all according to grace, but grace is not a free-for-all. Because right along with the statement that it's all according to grace is the warning. <laughs> and a pretty strict or stern warning, wouldn't you say? Alright? Get the whole verse up there? No. According to the grace, uh, <clears throat> he's, it's built, therefore take heed how... He builds on it. We have the opportunity or the privilege, we have the responsibility to build on the foundation uh, that was laid. Be careful. Take heed just means be careful. Be careful. And um, in my experience as a pastor, it's often or most often carelessness that causes people to do or to believe things that are not according to the grace. Thoughtlessness. Um, you know, I, you see people say or do things and you think, how in the world, why, why would someone do that? How, what, could they, what, what could they be thinking? Have they, have they ever read the Bible? You know what I'm talking about? And then I look at my own life and go, what was I thinking? <laughs> Amen? And that's the problem. We weren't. 
<laughs> All right? So we need to take heed. Be careful. This is important, folks. All right? Paul warns, be careful because what you place upon the foundation of your life will be judged. And it's not only the well-thought-out words and actions. Jesus says in Matthew 12, says, but here's what I tell you. On Judgment Day, people will have to account for every careless word they have spoken. That's a holy groan there. Every careless word. How do you, how do you control those careless words? Man, you work into your heart and your mind and you constantly dig to make sure that it's got good stuff in there. So what spills out is good stuff. Are you hearing me? All right. You daily get in God's Word. You daily pray. All right. And then um, the third uh, phrase I want to zero in on, it says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so this applies to the foundation of us as individual church members and to the foundation of the church itself. And so as individuals, we should function according to grace. As a church, we should function according to grace. As individuals, we should take heed. As a church, we should take heed. As individuals, we want to ensure that there is no other foundation in our life and likewise in the church. Everything, what does this mean? I think it means that everything should reflect the character, the person, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Everything in my life, everything in your life should in some way reflect. If it's built on that foundation, it should, it should in some way reflect His nature, His person, His purpose. Right? Does that make sense? You know, our first house that my wife and I bought, Many, many years ago. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, Kathy, but that little shed that was out behind, <clears throat> it was kind of like a garage, but it was really a shed. And the previous owner, and it's kind of funny, <clears throat> had like a big car, you could tell, because what they did was they cut a hole <laughs> in the back of the shed and build this little extension. But it was only about this high, a little lean-to coming out, so the front of his car could fit in. <laughs> you know, and I, it took me a while to figure out, what the heck was this? Was it a chicken coop? Or, you know, I'm thinking, and then I realized, you know, that, that's just wide enough for a car. In fact, we ended up, when we had a little Horizon, I think it was, or Omni or whatever that our car could fit in. <laughs> well, he had some big Lincoln or something, and, he, and he'd pull in, and the front end of the car would be in that little extension. But the extension, he didn't, he or she, I don't know who it was, <clears throat> they didn't put a foundation. They just built it on the dirt. And by the time we moved in, it was, it was pulling apart from the garage, from the rest of the shed, and it was falling apart, and it just looked like trash. And there was only one way to fix it. That was to tear it out and to rebuild the wall upon the foundation that was originally put there. And many things in the lives of Christians and churches are like uh, poorly built foundationless extensions, little add-ons that really don't fit. <clears throat> but boy, they seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you know. But if it's coming apart at the seams, if it's um, if there's leaks in the and the water's coming in when it rains, if the wind's blowing in dirt from outside, maybe the foundation wasn't secure. Maybe it wasn't built on on Christ the foundation. All right, and maybe that just needs to be torn out. And I've been, I, you know, this is if you've gotten with me for counseling, especially the last few years, I just like oh that part of your life just needs to be ripped out. And thrown away, you know, and because uh, it's not, you know, I try to say it in a loving way. <laughs> Do you not know, point four, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? All right, so what type of building should the church be? <clears throat> a shopping mall? How about a grocery store? How about a theater? Think of the different types of building. He says grocery store, amen. <laughs> the manager of the Harding store, right? <laughs> uh, uh, how about uh, uh, Walmart? <laughs> Got a few Walmart contingents here. Uh, how about a video arcade? Are there any video arcades? I don't think there are video arcades anymore, are there? Chuck E. Cheese. Is that, your, is that the type of building? Huh? Discovery zone. How about a, how about a, a lot of people think church should be like a doctor's office or a hospital or maybe a mental institution <laughs> or a gym or a restaurant. You know, and, and actually there's a lot of different theories and, and there's a whole study, uh, uh, it's called ecclesiology <clears throat> that people uh, study what church should look like. And I think you could go through all the different theories and compare them to different buildings. Uh, but the Bible tells, you know, we, we don't have to try to figure out what kind of building the church should be because the Bible tells us right here, it says that we are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. All right, let me read from Ephesians chapter 2. It, it says the same thing in, in a little different words. Through Christ... We both, and both being Jews and in the entire Gentile world, come to the Father by the power of one Holy Spirit. So that, so you are no longer strangers and outsiders. You are citizens together with God's people. You are, you are members of God's family. You are a building that is built on the apostles and prophets, they are the foundation. Christ Jesus himself, the most important stone or the cornerstone in the building. The whole building is held together by him. It rises to become, listen, it rises to become a holy temple because it belongs to the Lord. And because you belong to him, you too are being built together. You are being made into a house where God lives through his spirit. Wow! Individually and corporately, we are a temple. And we are a temple because, not because of what we look like, you know, not because of columns or stained glass, although we do have stained glass now. It's, be, <laughs> it's because of what's inside. Because of the Spirit. God's Spirit is in us that makes us a temple. All right? It's the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit that is then 
uh, transforms us outwardly. Okay, do you believe that God in uh, His Spirit dwells within you? Do the people you work with see it? And if they were to by chance catch a glimpse of it, what would it look like? It's fun. How is it demonstrated? How is it expressed? I mean, it says, and the next line says, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You see, this is a finished work. It's already done. It doesn't say you should be the temple. It doesn't say you could be the temple. It doesn't say act as though you were the temple. It doesn't say you are like a temple. It says you are the temple. And the temple is holy. Okay? Because His Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is not an aspirational value. It's not something you aspire to. Maybe someday I'll live like I'm a temple. You can't think that way. Because that's not... That's not a biblical view of church. The biblical view of church is that you already are indwelt by God's Spirit. And because of that, allow that to transform your life. And when we gather together, the Holy Spirit's here. So we should come expecting the Holy Spirit to do stuff and to change us. Whatever that looks like. You know, it, can, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be gentle and subtle. A still small voice. It can be corrective. It can be encouraging. All of those things. Because it's a truth. Everybody say it's a truth. Okay? It's not something you will... It's not like you will be the temple. He says very clearly, you are the temple. You are the temple. You are the temple. God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. He said, if you could, I wish you could, we had a video, you know, where you could hear Paul's voice because he's, he's talking to these people saying, man, don't you realize you're the temple? And think of this. <clears throat> to the Jewish mind, the temple was the most sacred place. Do you know the Wailing Wall? Ever hear of the Wailing Wall? How many have heard of the Wailing Wall? Put your hands up. All right. <clears throat> you know why people go to the Wailing Wall and pray? Any ideas? It's the last remaining part of the temple that goes back all of the Herod's temple that built it. And that was built on uh, where Solomon's temple was. So they believe that these were the foundation stones of the, of, of the temple in Jerusalem. And just these, this one little portion uh, inspires them to go. Tens of thousands, millions of them go and pray. I've talked to people that have gone there and, and uh, you can feel the presence of so many prayers over so many centuries. All right? Uh, 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 and so it was, it was the address for God. Okay? Alright, now from the Gentile, the Corinthian view, <clears throat> the temple was the dominant. I've seen a picture of this, with this temple in Corinth. It literally was up on a hill and it overlooked the whole city. And so the entire culture of the whole city was influenced by the temple. So even from the Gentile perspective, when he says, you're the temple, they had a very poignant image of what that meant. It wasn't something, oh, it's down the street on the left somewhere out there. I don't know where it's at. You know? It influenced every aspect of the community and every individual, even if that individual wasn't 
a worshiper of Aphrodite, Aphrodite they still were influenced, all right? Because the prostitutes would come and hit up on them. I don't know. <clears throat> Are you hearing me? All right? And so when Paul says, you're the temple, that is radical theology. That is radical life-changing, uh, society-changing, uh, city-changing idea, okay? If it's put into practice, if it's embraced. And it is the only way that God works to change a culture, by the way, is by changing the hearts and the lives of individuals that gather together as His church, as His body, to live in a way that embraces those who were, like us, involved in destructive life uh, patterns and welcomes them in in a way that speaks freedom into their lives. Okay? And unfortunately, that's not what many people in the world think of the church. They see just this rejection. But in reality, we're holy temples, containers, if you will, uh, filled with God's vibrant, life-giving Spirit to go out and influence our society. What an honor. What a treat. All right, next week we will look at what it means to be God's garden. Right now, Carrie has some announcements. Ta-da! Welcome, Carrie.